clearly not only has there been a habit built up, but his wife has an emotional connection to the reason for her buying plastic water bottles. On his end, as the husband, it's hard to understand, right? She loves scuba. She knows intellectually, she knows that plastic ends up in the ocean. She knows that this is her and her environment. She knows that I don't like it. She knows I got a compost thing in the background, right? I just don't understand why she sees it that way. And that's what happens to us a, a lot of times, especially when someone's doing something that makes no sense to us and we feel like they have all the logical reasons for not doing it and we can't figure out why they won't change. Well, unfortunately, folks, the only thing left is an emotional attachment. And before you can actually solve the problem, you got to address the emotional attachment. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Brandon Voss and I cover negotiation as developed by an FBI hostage negotiator and a football player father and son team. Brandon is the son of Chris Voss, who is a guest on the show. Actually, more than the family nature or the FBI basis is Brandon's educational approach. You can hear he really wants to help you improve. The conversation sounds tactical at the beginning. Things like words to use and what goals to seek in a negotiation. And for listeners who have read my books, Leadership Step-by-Step or Initiative, or taken my courses in person or online, you'll hear that their teaching technique is like mine. You learn from practicing the basics. As we continue past the tactics at the beginning, you'll hear him reveal strategy. And it's not just to win a negotiation. It's closer to how to live and participate in relationships. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Brennan Voss. Brennan, how are you doing? Josh, I'm doing fantastic, man. Thanks for having me on. Good to hear. I'm glad to have you here. And actually, I really want to dive into asking about negotiation and environmental issues, but let's get a little background on you. You are the director of operations at Black Swan Group, and you bring FBI negotiation, hostage negotiation tactics to business. Can you give us a little more background? That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, so for those of you that don't know, Chris Voss, my father, he wrote the book, Never Split the Difference. Well, for all intents and purposes, we wrote the book together. Tall Roz, our co-author, came and, and stayed in my house for a couple of days and interviewed me and my father in my kitchen. And, and that's kind of how the book writing process with him got started. But Chris, was a, he was a former lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI. And when he retired, uh, he wanted to bring that skill set to the private sector. And so we, we joined forces, as it were. And and uh, in 2009, we started doing business together. I came on officially with him in, in 2010. You know, he, he learned negotiation from a hostage negotiation standpoint, which essentially is a world where you have to get everything that you need and there is no compromise. Compromise is not an option, right? You can't, you can't take half the hostages and let the hostage take or keep the rest. And then in combination with, with my background, I was in sales. I, I did retail sales with Macy's. I did business-to-business sales with Verizon. I got a lot of training during that time period and, um, you know, just combining the knowledge base of the two things. And he brought the skill set to the uh, to the private sector. And it's been a lot of fun. And people are getting a big kick out of how do I approach every negotiation process, make it better than it was when I came in and then leave where both myself and our counterparts are happy with the outcome. There's a lot of questions I want to ask. There's one of them is that you said that you can't when you're negotiating for hostages, you don't want to split the difference. You don't want to compromise. And you actually wrote a blog post recently that said that it's not only that a compromise messes things up. And I think people kind of get compromises like it's everyone's kind of given up. I mean, a lot of people look at compromise as what you want, but a lot of people also look at compromises. No one's getting what they want. 
Could you expand on that? Yeah, sure. And I'd be happy to. And compromise is, is an interesting word. I mean, some people may even look at it as, okay, what am I willing to give up in order to try to leverage a way for me to get the things that I want out of the other side? I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at compromise, but I think in general, while there are a lot of ways to look at it, in general, the biggest problem most people have is compromising before they even get to the table. And so there's a lot of different angles that we take on compromise. That's one of the big ones that we focus on. And for those of you that, so for our listeners, compromising before you get to the table is when you're with your, your team, you're prepping to go into the situation and you say things like, oh, we could never ask them that because they're going to react this way. Or better yet, we're not going to ask them that because we already know what they're going to say. And when you're doing that, you are compromising your position before you even have gotten a chance to get to the table and explore and navigate. And so that's one of the places where we really start. But yeah, compromise is a problem. And and in some cases, people look at it as a tool to accomplish their own goals. So let's see, I'm I'm partly thinking about what about when it's multi-party negotiation? Because I'm thinking about like Congress and most people aren't in big things like that, but there are going to be meetings where there's like five different people and... Does it differ if there's more than two people? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. The process differs slightly in regards to kind of how you're going to sequence yourself out. But the process in regards to how you approach the situation never changes. Because no matter how many parties are involved, you're still dealing with human beings. And at the end of the day, human beings are emotionally driven creatures that make decisions based on what matters to them. And so one of the ways to have real negotiation prowess, real negotiation power, as it were, is to be in a position where you can navigate all emotions at will. And of course, in the book, we talk about some specific sets of skills in order to do that. I'm glad that you talked about the emotional side of things and the social side of things. Because when I teach leadership, I think I'm teaching the social and emotional skills that schools generally don't. Oh, man, I bet is any of what you guys teach, I, I bet everyone loves it. I bet everyone finds it supremely valuable. And I bet you get here a lot. They don't teach me anything like this in school. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting point, right? Like there's, uh, there's certain things that you should probably start to learn at a young age that I feel like our, our educational system uh, shorts us of. And, and unfortunately, one of those things is, you know, how do you use tactical empathy? How do you use emotional intelligence? How do you become a better listener? What are the things that you need to say to another person to get them to tell you stuff they might not tell anybody else, right? Those are, that's a skill set that unfortunately schools don't really focus on. It sounds like really valuable skills. I can't imagine that having a class on how to communicate better every single time you talk to somebody would be a bad one. What's it like having a father who's a hostage negotiator? Do you get that question a lot? You know, I, I get it a fair amount, I, I, especially these days. I probably didn't get it as much when I was a kid and, and we weren't in business together, but <laughs> it's, it's cool, man. It's, it's a fun thing. You know, speaking back when, when I was a kid, he was obviously the most popular parent, you know, on career days and, and <laughs> things like that, right? He was always a big hit. But I mean, the reality is, is that his job was to travel internationally and save the lives of Americans lost in other countries. And unfortunately, what that means is that's not a job he did from home very often. And so mm. he traveled a lot. He worked a lot. He made it a point to make it to all my football games, you know, bless his heart. Even when he was international, he'd fly back in just to see me play football for a couple hours and fly back out. So we've always had a really close relationship. But something that he noticed much uh, sooner than I did was that I was picking up the skills that he used in hostage negotiation but I was using them to get out of trouble in high school. And that's when he first started to realize that I was picking up some of the skill set. You know, it's speaking to him, I got a, and actually in negotiation, when I first started learning negotiation, and I don't pretend to be an expert, I did a lot of hiding information and I felt like the goal was to win uh, at the other person's expense. And maybe there are cases where it's just single issue and there's nothing I can do about it. And, you know, I want to get a lower price and that's end of story, but that's really rare. And those aren't the really meaningful ones. And it's really opened me up to sharing my interests and to getting to know the other person and which I never would have expected. And I bet that that would lead to someone who's an expert at negotiation to be a more open person 
the contrary to what I bet a lot of people would expect. And I'm reading that was the case. I mean, time, you said time was a big issue, but when you were together, it sounds like there was more openness. Is that something that negotiation brings out? Yeah, you know, that's that's an interesting thought. I guess I, I guess I had never really thought about it like that. But when it comes to, you know, being at the negotiation table and, and having, being in possession of information that you feel like is very sensitive and being worried that if the other side knew about it, they could use it against you or, or they could take advantage of you in some way, right? You, you, the sense of I'm losing leverage if I tell them these things. And the flip side is, how can they give you what you want if you don't explain it to them, right? And, and, and to a certain degree, we all understand that about negotiation. However, there's a sequencing. And when we go into negotiation, our natural tendency is to want to lead with our own justifications, right? We've come in the room with all this data. We've got all this stuff to back up our position. We got to sit down and we got to drill it into the other side until they understand. And unfortunately, that approach is, is very contrary to what Stephen Covey refers to as, as seek first to understand in order to be understood, right? And, and when you seek first to understand, it's very much like you said, listening, but there comes a time when you're going to have to lay out your side, right? There's things that you're going to need to say. And how you say them is just as important as what you say. And, and one of the things we talk about in the book and, and we teach on a lot is chances are everything that you want to explain to the other side you can probably put into question form to get them to think about it. And unfortunately, when we explain things to people, it does not trigger the part of the brain that develops thought. If anything, people have a natural reaction to being explained. And when they're explained, uh, when someone's explaining things to them, the natural reaction is then for them to dig their heels in, especially when that explanation doesn't match up with their own point of view. But if you can present the same information in question form, it will actually force their brain and force their force the wheels to spin, as it were, and, and take into account exactly what you said. And so a lot of it's in, in presentation, right? Your tone, the words that you're using, how you're phrasing what you're going to say, all that stuff is important. And that's where we really focus. I think that's where really we have carved out a bit of a niche for ourselves is because we really focus on what are the words as opposed to here's this theory about you should use emotional intelligence. So I'm really focusing on one of the things you said. Of, I mean, I think one of the hearts of it was the, if you can put it into question format. So I'm thinking, mm -hmm. I can't do that, might switch to, how am I supposed to do that? Yeah, right. There's a, there's a couple different ways that this mm -hmm. comes up. And so, for example, and this is an easy one for me, it comes directly from my world, and, and we, could, we could spitball examples all day long, but just for, for points of ease, on our side, getting our clients to commit to a longer-term engagement that gives us time to reinforce the skills is a big part of our process, right? And, and the reality is, if your sales team has been negotiating a certain way for 20 years, no one is going to be able to come in and change 20 years of habits. In, in a, a weekend seminar. Program. Yeah, or even yeah. in a weekend, right? No, and that's what they want. They want like... Oh, just coming for a weekend, turn everything around. And you're like, okay, so you want to have more time than that. <laughs> exactly right. That's what people want. Yeah, come in, we'll, we'll, we'll get our takeaways, and uh, it'll improve our bottom line. The reality is it just doesn't work that way. And maybe if you got a group of 60, maybe two people actually accomplish that. But without some sort of reinforcement and repetition, there's, there, things just don't stick. That's why in sports, People have practice. Even, even athletes that have been playing for a thousand years, like a Michael Jordan or a LeBron James, guess what? Those guys still practice because repetition is important. Well, the brain and communication, all that stuff works the same way. So you want to explain you guys need this extra program. You need to reinforce the skills. You need to do these things, right? It's easy to want to explain and then tell them why. Very much like I'm doing with you now, right? I'm explaining all the reasons. And the simple switch is simply, what's your plan for making sure that everything is reinforced? And I get the same thought, we get the same thought process started in someone's head that we were trying to start with the list of explanations. Here's the 10 reasons why you should do what I say. You get them to think about all 10 things by simply putting it in question form. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a nuanced way to look at how you explain yourself, but really what is more so um, rooted in is how do I trigger a thought process? 
And unfortunately, explanation is not a way to trigger a thought process. Uh, it triggers a thought process of arguing back or digging in heels. Like, how do I convince Brandon that he's wrong? That's a great point. Yes, that's a great point, right? The natural reaction, especially if someone disagrees on any level, if you want to explain, their natural reaction is then to question your explanation. They're not in thinking mode. They're not in problem-solving mode. They're simply in attack and rebuttal mode. So, right, how do you manage, how do you manage a thought process? And a lot of it starts with how you're addressing people's individual emotions. If they want you in for a weekend and you think that it's best served with a, se- a series of weekends or, or some longer-term interaction, you might say, do you think that's enough time for people, for these concepts to really sink in? Or I guess, yeah, and I guess it's not the question so much as is what do I want them thinking? And that will guide me to form the questions. That's, yeah, that's exactly it. And, and for those, for our listeners, Josh, what he just did was he laid out what we would refer to as a no-oriented question. And Josh, exactly what you laid out, we've used different forms of that, right? Just moving some words around, but essentially getting them to say no, right? Do you have a plan to make sure your team continues to use what they've learned, right? The uh-huh. obvious answer is no. And so that triggers the thought process. That's, that's a great example, right? It doesn't necessarily need to be what or how, but the intention is, what are we trying to trigger in the other side? And then how do we put the words together in order to do it? Yeah, actually, since reading uh, Never Split the Difference, I've been doing that a lot. I, like, you know, I've been working on asking questions that I know I'm going to get nose to. Partly, I didn't fully understand it, but I thought if I practice it, that'll give me some exposure, ex- experience with it. So when I'm scheduling something with someone and I've sent two or three emails that haven't gotten a response, now I'll send, based on the book, I'll send something like, have you given up on this project? Or am I persisting too much? And that has not ended any relationships. And I don't think it's even damaged any relationships. I'm just kind of getting the patterns. And now I'm glad. So one, I'm saying this so that people listening will read the book and give it a shot. But also for my own selfish reasons, I'm, I'm glad to pick this up. And I just saw you also did a blog post on that too. So you write about a lot of these things. And all the titles on you, I mean, all the stuff you write about is really intriguing. Yeah, thanks, man. We got, um, you know, we got a good system now on how we're doing blogs. Uh, Chris and I have been, my dad and I have been, oh, what's it been, six years now, I think, that we've been, uh, we've been putting out blog posts. Most of them are written by, by him and myself. And uh, the fun thing about it is now that, that the fan base is, is, is continuing to grow and we have a lot of really, really strong supporters, you know, we, we always, we love hearing the opinions and the recommendations from our fan base, right? Because people always want different stuff and they're looking for different things or different angles or questions. And so people will reach out and ask us to write about specific topics, which is also, you know, that's hugely helpful. And we, we, we don't take that stuff for granted. Oh, well, great. Then I'm going to help you because you're, I mean, what you do, what it says on the pages of what you do is you bring the hostage negotiation tactics to business. And so the environment is overlaps a lot with business, but it's not exactly business. And there's a lot of situations where people, I'm going to give you a situation I came in yesterday. Uh, someone, a friend of mine was over and he's been listening to the podcast and he's taken on a challenge for himself which is to use less plastic at home. I'm sorry. Well, he already built a composting. I don't know what you call it, like a wall where he could put his composting in his backyard so he could compost. And now he's getting all the scraps from, and he's pointing out to the kids and the wife when they're throwing away something, a scrap that's compostable, he's like, put that in the compost. And so they're getting that. All right, but here's the issue. He doesn't use plastic bottles anymore. And his wife buys them by the pallet, apparently. And he wants her to stop using plastic bottles. And it sounds like a negotiation issue. And I wonder how you would frame it, how he'd look at it. Oh, and then I want to share how I, how, what I suggested with him and get your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, very good. And that, yeah, that's a, that is an interesting situation. It's always, it's always fun when a negotiation comes up between a husband and a wife, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> between people that are living together, right? That's always, and, and emotions are always higher the closer someone is to you, it always seems like. But yeah, that's, he, that's, a, that's an interesting one. And he says that she loves scuba diving, so oceans are important to her. And I think this is something, I mean, this is, it's plastic bottles and a husband and wife, but I think there's a lot of kids with their parents and there's a lot of parents with their kids and there's a lot of family issues. I think there's a lot of families where different people have different levels of environmental activity and 
they, yeah, like at my mom's house, there's all sorts of things, but I'll pick one is that no one ever seems to be able to turn on the water a little bit. It's either on full blast and they're like rinsing off a spoon and they use like, you know, in the whole scheme of things, it's not a whole lot of water, but it's still the practice. And I just don't talk about it. But each time I'm like, you just used all that water. And they will say to me, oh, if so-and-so, when they brush their teeth, they use the water, they leave the water on while they're brushing their teeth. I'm like, you do it just now. So I think it's a more general situation, but I'm curious about this one specific case. How would you look at it? It's not a hostage thing, but does your experience and skills apply? Well, I, I would have to say uh, wholeheartedly they apply. And, and when, when we actually work with new groups and, and old groups alike, one of the things that we really emphasize is you need low stakes practice, right? If you're going to go out and you're going to try these skills out, they're going to feel awkward. The first time you try them, you don't want to be in the Super Bowl, right? You don't want to be in the championship game where you're sitting at the table, you got 10, 20, $20 million on the line, and now you're trying something for the first time, right? You should have tried it at home with your spouse, with your kids, you know, at the drive through at the McDonald's, at the Starbucks counter, you know, when you're at Macy's or when you're buying at Burlington Colfax, you know, whatever, at the airport, right? Those, those have, you should have tried the skills in all those environments first, just to build some familiarity with it. So, you know, that said, in regards to this one, clearly not only has there been a habit built up, but his wife has an emotional connection to the reason for her buying plastic water bottles. And so on his end, as the husband, it's hard to understand, right? She loves scuba. She knows intellectually, she knows that plastic ends up in the ocean. She knows that this is her and her environment. She knows that I don't like it. She knows I got a compost thing in the background, right? I just don't understand why she sees it that way. And that's what happens to us a, a lot of times, especially when someone's doing something that makes no sense to us and we feel like they have all the logical reasons for not doing it. And we can't figure out why they won't change. Well, unfortunately, folks, the only thing left is an emotional attachment. And before you can actually solve the problem, you got to address the emotional attachment. So for the wife, there's a couple different approaches that we, we could easily take. One would be to construct some sort of accusations audit, which is designed to address all negatives up front, or to use some sort of a label just to get some information flow going, right? Just to get her to open up a little bit and give you some, um, uh, some material to help shape the question that's going to change her behavior. And the first thing would be something along the lines of, it seems like water bought in water bottles is safer than water you can get anywhere else. Because there's something there. There's something about the cleanliness of the water. There's something about it being safer, being FDA approved, you know, whatever the case may be. There's something about that that causes her to go to the store and buy them every single time when she could just simply have a Brita in her refrigerator. And before she's going to change her habit, you got to understand why she's got the habit in the first place. And the best way to show an understanding of what that habit is, is to try to articulate. So going in with a label, it seems like water that comes in water bottles is safer than water you could get anywhere else. Now, I'm going to interrupt here. It seems like you feel that water is safer or it seems like water is safer? Well, you know what? You could actually structure it either way. Okay. You could structure it either way. And so in this particular case, dealing with a spouse, knowing you're in a, in a, in a highly emotional state, Using something like the word feel or feelings or you see or you feel that things are this way for a reason is going to be a great way to resonate with her specifically in this instance. Okay. So at a top level, let me see if I get this right, that engaging on a factual discussion will probably go back to the digging in heels. And so that'll be effective, but that'll be effective, not what we want. It'll be effective the opposite. And so- we could ask questions, but we don't yet know what questions we want to ask about because what's in her mind and in her heart is we don't quite know, or he doesn't quite know. And so we have to find out what that is. And then once we get a sense of what that is, then we can start asking more meaningful questions to get her thinking about how she can change or how she can act on what, well, I guess we'd have to figure that out by, I, I can't tell what the next question would be because we don't yet know her answer. Right, exactly. And, and, and really like this label approach up front is really designed 
to what we refer to as, as open the floodgates of truth telling. So getting that, getting that conversation started and also the, the, big, the big piece of this, we like to say that uh, mastery is in tonality. So when you deliver a label like that, you got to make sure that your tone is good because it, sound, it sounds like you feel water out the bottle is safer, right? That is not a tone of voice that is going to get you very far with your wife, right? It sounds is it gonna like you're taking a Is it going to be late shot. night FM DJ? There you go, right? Late, yeah. <laughs> late night FM DJ or even, even a better one would coincide with our accommodator's tone of voice, right? We, the accommodator is one of the three types of negotiators, negotiators that, that we refer to in the book. And the accommodator's natural tone of voice is a friendly, upbeat, endearing, you know, someone that's easy to talk to. You know, that person that you see and you, you almost connect right away and you want to walk up and you want to talk to them because there's just something about them that just makes you feel like we should have a conversation. You know, that the tone of voice that comes with the accommodator is something that promotes that type of, of communication, that type of environment. So, yeah, you can really go two ways, right? Late night FM DJ or, you know, a friendly tone of voice. But the one thing to really be careful of when you're using tone of voice, if on a subconscious level, you really feel like the decision the other person is making is a stupid one, if you're not practiced and you go in and you try to use a friendly tone of voice, it could come off as disingenuous because there's going to be undertones in your voice of like, I can tell that you really don't agree with my decision. So, you know, the tone of voice thing is, is a bit nuanced because it does take a little bit of focus. You got to choose, you got to choose your, uh, your points, if, as it were. But opening up those floodgates of truth telling is going to put you in a place where you can start to ask some of those more informed questions. But the other thing to kind of consider here is as part of your preparation going into a negotiation like this, you can probably start to surmise some of the reasons why she might do something like this. Safety convenience. It's something that her mother always did, right? She got the habit from someone else in her family, superstition, uh, the, the fact that it's on sale, the fact that it's a certain brand, right? She always buys Dasani. She always buys Deer Park. She's got a relationship with the brand, right? There's a lot of reasons that we could start to surmise why she does this. And then when we lead into the conversation, we lead with one of those reasons, and the great thing about putting it into a, a label format, right, it seems like it sounds like whether right or wrong, it's going to encourage her to fill in the gaps. And even more so, if you're wrong, it's going to encourage her even more. Because what do people like to do? Uh, one, of the more, one of the more favorite things that the, the general public likes to do, we love to correct. We love to tell people how smart we are. So when you ask something or say or make a verbal observation that's just a little bit off, it wholeheartedly encourages your counterpart to then spew a bunch of information to fill in all the holes for you. Wow, this is it's a total reframing, I think, from the mainstream view of negotiation of I think the strategy we grew up with was like conflict, sweep it under the rug, act like it's not there. And this is just diving in and saying, learn how to handle it, develop the skill. I mean, you talked a lot about practice, you talked a lot about preparation. And I feel like that's maybe at the strategic level. And the tactic, and then once you have the strategy of instead of sweeping under the rug, but prepare, be rehearsed, know the skills, develop the skills, uh, know the terrain, then you act with the tactics. And when you have that approach, conflict isn't going to go away, but it's not going to. What I'm reading is that there can be conflict. If you don't handle it, it's going to blow up. If you know how to handle it, it's part of building a relationship. I think that that's a that's a fantastic point. And yet yeah, to to the first part of what you said about if you not if you don't handle it it's going to blow up. I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, we we refer to unresolved conflict or just conflict that exists at, at any level. You know, we refer to it like it's an infection, right? If you don't add the ointment to it, you don't add medicine to it, you don't treat it, that infection is just going to get worse and it's going to spread. But to your point, it's a great way to build trust with someone. If you're somebody that approaches a negotiation and you're fearless in the face of conflict or negativity, and you approach it in a way that's like, look, I see that this exists. And I see that you clearly have a problem with it. Instantly, you are more trustworthy. As a negotiation partner, you are instantly more trustworthy because you see the same things that I see, as opposed to 
you just explained a bunch of stuff to me that I disagree with, and now we're arguing. And then in the context, sorry to interrupt, and then in the context of environment, so many people, myself included, you know, it's, oh, don't you know that that's going to end up in the ocean? Or don't you know that that's going to blah, blah, blah? Like, didn't you read that? And that's like, <laughs> it's going to be very, uh, digging, going to motivate them to dig in their heels. And, and, and you've missed the opportunity, or I've missed, we've all missed the opportunity to instantly create trust. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And I I love your example too. And I just want to stick there for a second because for our listeners, you can hear Josh's tone of voice when he says, don't you know, that's going to end up in the ocean. And when you say, when we say things like that, right from a guy like Josh or someone that's got a real, you know, you got a real passion for the environment and you want to educate people where you're coming from is very genuine. You want to educate them. You want them to know. And to a certain degree, you expect them to know anyway, right? But you can hear it in the tone of voice. Don't you know that's going to end up in the ocean, you idiot? Right? You can almost hear it. You didn't do it on purpose, but I love your example because that's exactly the way people sound. We mean the best. We have the best of intentions. But unfortunately, your tone of voice says, I think you're stupid. And when we're not conscious of those things, it, it causes instant conflict. And, and, and if anything, gives the counterpart a reason to dig their heels in and trust you even less. And I love that example because people do that all the time. You ask a yes-oriented question, and the tone of voice very much says, I do not think that you're a smart individual. And we don't do those things on purpose, but it happens at the negotiation table when we're not conscious of it. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. Man, I have no doubt that we could talk for hours without me flagging any bit of attention because this is utterly fascinating to me and it's going over stuff that I've covered many, many times before, but it's, there's nuances and subtleties and things that I'm picking up in, in what you're saying. But I want to switch over to, we've been talking to me a lot about leadership and I'll switch over to environment. Sure. And if that, if I'm not switching too much and when we talk about the environment, it, it sounds like something that is something important to you because it's not foreign to you. What do you think of when you think of the environment? You know, when, when I think about the environment, I do, I think about it from ho- holistically. And, and I think, um, you know, a lot of people that are heavy into the environment, right? You think about the animals that are affected. You know, you think about, you know, the, the soil that's affected, right? You think about the trees and, you know, the, the ice caps, right? We think about those things, but we don't always include the fact that human beings that are also on the planet causing the problem are in fact part of the environment. And part of taking care of the environment, somewhat, it sounds really cheesy, but part of it is taking care of each other. And when it comes down to just basic environmental stuff, right, I'm huge into recycling. It's interesting you mentioned the wife that likes to scuba dive, right? I love scuba diving. I love being out. I love fishing. I've been camping. You know, I started camping with my grandfather when I was at a really young age. And I love the environment as well. But part of taking care of the environment, some of that has to do with taking care of each other. And it could be as simple as just offering a simple kindness to someone uh, that you pass on the street. So I, the first thing you said was holistic. And I think holistic was, that was your intro to, yes, it's animals. Yes, it's the world that people talk about. In particular, it's about people. I, I certainly think that I don't like to think of, if I'm conserving some part of the environment or protecting some part of the environment, it's, yes, I care about animals. I care about trees. But really, I care more about people. And I feel like, is that something that, and, and helping people is helping the environment, helping the environment is helping people. Am I, get, am I getting it right? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, that's, that's definitely the way I see it. I mean, it sounds like there's, there's some similarities in the way that we look at it. But yeah, I mean, help, help, helping the environment and helping an individual, I, I feel like in, in a lot of ways are one and the same. Well, and I guess you also talked about the family connection and the spending time with your, do I remember right, it was your grandfather camping at a young yep. age? Yeah, yeah. It started, you know, it's, it's, it's always, uh, if, you, if you've ever been fishing, it is always 
an ugly sight to show up at a really good fishing spot. And there's beer cans uh. and plastic bottles and trash all over because the last couple of people didn't clean up after themselves. Yeah, man. It's, I try to put myself in the mindset of a lot of different people and I'm able to do that. And when I see someone littering, I just, it's really uncomfortable to get to a place where I can just drop something on the ground. And that's, I'm thinking now in the city, but out in the, in the country or in the wilderness or in the, in the forest, to do it there, to get to a place where someone's like, yeah, it's no big deal. I'll just drop this beer bottle here. Yeah, Sorry, I, I just I, I don't, No, no, I, I mean, clearly there's a passion there for that. I mean, which is why you got Environment as part of your podcast title, right? Because it's just, and I think it's, it's more so, I think we're, we're also hard on people. Because I, I, I don't think there are very many individuals out there that are like, screw the world, screw this, screw that. I'm dropping this bottle on the ground, right? The, the thought process doesn't go that far. And so if you run into somebody who, who does litter or someone who, you know, they have, they have this subconscious effort where they're just, you know, I got this thing in my hand that I don't want it in my hand anymore. I'm going to let it go and let it fall to the ground. And now it's somebody else's problem. And I think that's, that's really what it boils down to is like, it's, it's, a, it's a subconscious thing, right? Where there isn't a conscious effort to screw the environment up, but even more so, we're just passing the issue off to somebody else. And it takes no energy from our part, right? It's, it's a very, it's an easy road, right? It's easier to drop this can here than it is to walk down the block where the trash can is and throw it in the trash can. Right? I'll drop yeah. it here. Somebody's going to pick it up and put it in the trash can. Or some, some guy, the maintenance guy is going to come by and clean it up, right? There's, you know, it's, it, I think it's, it's more so, it's thoughtlessness rather than thoughtfulness. And so when you run into somebody on the street, what is, the, what is the thing you could say to them in really short order, in five seconds, that the next time they got a piece of trash in their hand, they're going to think twice before they drop it on the ground? Do you have an answer for that? Or is that- well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it until, until you and I had got on the phone here. But you know, I think something probably along the lines of a no-oriented question is probably, is probably what would fit best. And so, yeah, I- yeah would, would, you, would you call yourself a litterer? Right. Because people wouldn't self-identify as someone who litters. Right. Like what? Describe yourself in three words. Right. Litter. I'm a litterer. I'm someone who puts trash on the ground. Isn't something that plays into your thought process. But like, do you see yourself like this? Do you see yourself as someone who's helping the environment? Do you see the action as being productive? Once I saw someone littering. Yeah. On a block away from where I lived and I stopped him. And I said, well, first I said, I think you dropped something. And he said, yeah, it's just a tissue. And so I pointed at the building where I live and I said, that's where I live. Would you want me littering in your neighborhood? Mm -hmm. And he just walked away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, some some of the concepts that we teach, while we focus so much on the specific wording is because there are certain words and certain phrases that we as people, as human beings, we're sensitive to. And those words are things like, I understand, or why did you say that? Why would you do that? Right? There's certain things that we just have a certain, you know, it, we have certain triggers that just go off automatically. We've got a certain sensitivity to. And unfortunately, you know, would you want me to litter in your neighborhood? I think that's that type of question is very similar to the type of questions that we got asked when we were kids and we did stuff wrong. Oh, yeah. Which goes right back to why our sensitivity. Would you like me to do this? You idiot is kind of how it probably came yeah. off. Yeah, 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 exactly. Were you would child? You, would you want like, right, you get into a fight and like, would you want them to take your toy away? Right. Or would you want would you want that kid to punch you in the face? Right. Would you would you want her to lose your game? Right. And, and, and those those type of manipulative, quote unquote, right, as a, for lack of a better term, questions are asked when we're kids of us by adults when we've done things wrong and we build a sensitivity to them as we get older. So, you know, would you want me to do that to you? Right. That's a question we've all heard in some form at some point in our lives. And we know that the intention behind it is you're wrong and I'm right. And so you got to be, we got to be sensitive to asking stuff that's structured with those exact words, 
because we already know that there's uh, there's emotional triggers that are tied to those naturally. Okay. All right. Now I want to go back a few steps to, you talked about what the environment means to you and, and these things. And so what I ask guests on the show is at your option, I invite you, these values you talked about, which could be, I mean, you talked about camping with a grandfather and you talked about the holistic, you talked about the, the environment and people and people and environment. Is there something you could do to act on those values? And I, you know, just so you don't get the wrong idea, it's not to fix all the world's problems by yourself overnight, but it can't be telling other people what to do. And it can't be something you're already doing. And it can't be, it has to be something that's makes a measurable difference. So education and learning or heightened awareness, that's nice, but that's, I'm looking for something that makes a measurable difference that you yourself do. Yeah. Yeah, no, very good. I, I, I'm glad you asked. So years ago when, when uh, my dad and I were still living in the, in the New Jersey area, we used to attend a church in New York and Manhattan on Fifth Avenue called Marble Collegiate Church. And it was uh, started by, by Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote the, the book Power of Positive Thinking. And his successor, a guy by the name of Arthur Caliandro, who has since passed, but was a great pastor, great successor to, to, to Norman, he was our pastor. When we went through Marble, Arthur was running the show. And there was something that Arthur really loved to do, and he referred to it as the lift game. And what the lift game entailed was going out into the world and changing the attitude of basically every person that you run into during the day. And and in short, an easy way to look at it is every person you come in contact with, is there a way you can make them smile? And then even more so, if you see someone that's extremely upset, is there a way that you can help get them out of it? Because I, I guarantee you, Somebody who's really upset is much more likely to litter than somebody who's in a really good mood. The person who's in a really good mood will take the extra 10 steps and go to the trash can. And so, you know, it's something that we used to do when I was younger and I haven't done for a long time. But now after talking to you and thinking about this, I'm going to start playing the lift game. I'm going to go out and I'm going to see what efforts I can make to have a direct effect on the attitudes of every single person I come in contact with. Because the great thing about something like that is there's always a ripple effect, right? Someone that was in a bad mood that's been changed to a positive mood by some some dope on the street like myself is going to go home and they're going to hug their kids a little bit tighter, right? They're going to they're gonna give kiss their wife a little bit longer. There's just something about when people are in a positive frame of mind, what that does to the environment around them and around us. And so, you know, thanks to you, Josh, and this environment and <laughs> And, you know, people are part of the environment too. What can I do to have a direct effect on everyone's attitude that I come in contact with? And that's, that's, that's going to be one of my goals going forward from today. Now, I'm going to challenge you a little bit, not to be a jerk, but because, you know, by your definition of environment, you're meeting what my criteria, because you, you talked about how the environment is other people. And by a measurable effect, if, if you're making other people happier, that would be changing your environment and by improving your, your environment by your, by your goals. I hope so. Now, just be, for me, and, and that's totally fine. For me, it feels like you're influencing other people, but not actually, it's not, is it a measurable effect on the environment? If so, great. If not, I just want to push to see if I can, I don't want to impose my values on you. If the answer is yes, the answer is yes. And I look forward to hearing how it goes. If the answer isn't, then it's it's not my values; it's yours. So I, I want to see if that's the case. It, is this does it fit the values, the, my criteria of of improving the environment measurably, and not telling other people what to do? Well, uh, I, I I definitely agree with you. The being able to measure uh, the effect of of random people in the environment is is definitely tough. It'd be much easier to measure it with people in. Uh, that are more regularly in my environment, and I, and I can I can definitely pay more attention to that. But yeah, I think I think you know for me personally, that's that's probably one of the places where I'm lacking because you know I I already you know I love I already recycle you know I actually uh, my uncle ran a recycling plant in Iowa with his family It was a family business for many many years, so I've had the recycling thing dumped on me for a while, and I, I've spent you know, my, my number of, of minutes or hours cleaning up or, around a, a, a really good fishing site because of the things that I've seen. And uh, 
I think probably where just taking a look at myself and kind of like where I'm lacking, what can I do better? And as far as affecting my, the environment around me and, and, and things that I know are hard to measure, I know make a difference overall is how do I affect the people? Cause I'm, I'm definitely one of those types that I'll go through my day and ignore everyone around me because I'm busy. I got things I got to worry about. I got things I got to take care of. And unfortunately, you know, I'm, I'm a larger guy. And I think this happens to just, just about anybody. You come off as a jerk. People don't look at you as a nice person. Like, oh, he never talks to anybody. He must not be very nice, right? And so I know that I can have a direct effect on the environment around me by simply changing the attitudes of the people I come in contact with. Okay, so I pushed and you stood. So that meets my criteria. What I like to do is to then schedule a second conversation and along the way, make it a smart goal so that how long, I mean, it sounds like this is something you might do for a long time, but how long before you could, if we spoke again, that you could give a good account to the audience of how it went for you? Oh yeah. Good question. You know, it probably definitely in less than a month, you know, maybe a week or two, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take that, it doesn't take that long, but yeah, definitely. uh, I would love to, to jump back on and kind of talk about, you know, what has happened since. Okay. So after we hang up, then we'll schedule that. And I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but we'll pick up there because I, I really look forward to the second conversation because usually what people expect, they get more. And I'm curious to how it turns out. All right. Very good. Yeah. I'd be happy. I'd be happy to talk, talk about it. Yeah. That'd be fun. Yeah, in particular, I think that, I think that you might've had you decided to do this without talking to me, you might do it anyway, just because it sounds like it's going to improve your life. But I think now you're doing it with the word environment in your head or in your heart in some way, I bet it's going to, that'll make it happen differently than it would have otherwise. So I'm curious to hear how that plays out. Yeah, I, I would agree too. I mean, I, th- I think, uh, you know, your, your intention, which is where, where you're coming from subconsciously when you approach any issue, uh, definitely that's, that's where a lot of the solution starts. It definitely comes from intention. There's, there's going to be a lot of deliberate intention here. I'd like to wrap up with a couple questions. Is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up and anything you want to say directly to the listeners? Um, well, how off-putting would it be to do a little self-promotion? Please, yeah. By the way, all that leadership stuff was incredible promotion. If anyone wasn't listening to that and thinking, I want to read the book, I want to read the blogs, I want to contact these guys, I want to bring them into my company and bring in training. I mean, I think that wasn't self-promotion, but it... it it wasn't intended to be self-promotion, but I think that was incredible stuff. I think that's life-changing material. Yeah, no, there was a, there was a lot of good things we got a chance to talk about today. And the only, the only thing I wanted to mention, because you, you've referenced the blog several times, and our blog, it's, it's a free blog, comes out every Tuesday. It hits your inbox at about 9 a.m. your local time. And it's, it's the best way to keep up with what we're doing, you know, what events we're doing around the country. We got one, you know, coming up here soon. We're doing 10 this year. And, uh, you know, there's always, there's always good free content because we're always addressing a specific negotiation issue. So if you want to sign up, the easiest way is to text the words FBI Empathy, but it's all, all one word, all capital letters, FBI Empathy. And you can text it to 22828. And that'll they'll send you a link right to your phone and you can sign up from there. And that's, again, that's FBI Empathy, all one word capital letters to the number 22828. FBI empathy, one word, 22828. Yep. All caps, all caps. All right. Should we also give them the URL to read the blog, uh, to, to read it online? Sure. Sure. So yeah, our, our website, it's uh, a black swan ltd.com. Just like the company name, black, like the color swan, like the bird with one N and LTD like limited. Dot com. And then the book is Never Split the Difference, which I believe became the number one negotiation book. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. Never Split the Difference is the main title. Subtitle is Negotiating as if your life depended on it. And author is, is my father, Chris Boss. And, and our co-author is, is Tall Roz, who's also written, been a co-author on several other business books. He did a really nice job putting all the stories together. But yep, that's the book. And it's, it's a big seller. It's a big hit since it's come out. And then there's also the past episode with Chris on this podcast. And Tal is actually, we're negotiating, not negotiating, we're scheduling uh, for Tal to be on this podcast as well. Fantastic. Yeah, exactly. Chris was on already. And, uh, and Tal, I'm sure Tal will be a great, uh, great guest. He's always got a lot of good stuff today. Very good stuff to say. He's a very thoughtful person. 
Brendan Voss, thank you very much. Josh, thanks for having me on, man. I had a lot of fun. I hope you got as much out of the bottle example as I did, seeing the richness and depth available to grow a relationship in any negotiation. After enough conversations, I read his answer about the environment as defense. A lot of people say the environment is people. When something makes front page news for decades, they know the issue. Brandon knew that I was talking about the environment, the environment, not the environment meaning people. And I don't mean anything personal or negative about him. I point it out because his reaction is common. Many people listening now are probably protecting themselves from thoughts that might lead them to act for many reasons. Our society has made acting on the environment socially scary. It's full of judgment. So people avoid treating it, despite treating it being, for many people, one of the most important things that they could do. Anyway, his answer of getting people to smile, as garbage chokes the ocean and sea levels promise to submerge 90% of Florida, I see it, and I mean no offense to him, as a cop-out. Of course I like people smiling, but I believe he knows that he's choosing something other than what I was getting at, and other than what I believe he considers important. Also, I happen to be recording this after having recorded his second episode. And in that episode, he commits to something more seriously environmental. Since this episode, I decided to formally restrict interpretations of the environment to mean the physical environment. But knowing that he took on a more serious challenge, his second podcast reinforces that effective leadership requires starting where people are, not where you want them to be, where you think that they should be, but where they are. So even though he started off this time in a place where I was not looking for him to start, it still got him to where he took on another challenge. But you'll have to listen to the second episode to get that. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge. 